Prime Ministers Li Xianlong and Anwar Ibrahim visit China, a new trilateral security framework between Japan, the US, and the Philippines, and the growth of cloud infrastructure in the region. All this and more on today's episode of Southeast Asia Radio. I'm Karen Lee, and today is April 6th, 2023. On today's show... This is definitely about signaling that Beijing should not expect to be operating in a friendly, favorable environment with no pushback moving forward. But beyond that, I think it's a signal that, uh, as we hear from the White House regularly, that they want to make sure that allies are coordinating better with each other. And that means the integration of European and Asian allies to a greater effect than we have. That was Dr. Charles Idel on what the AUKUS announcement on March 13th signals to Beijing and regional partners in the Indo-Pacific. It's a fascinating discussion, so stay tuned. First, though, the headlines. Today, to help me read the headlines, I am delighted for the second episode in a row to be joined by another former intern I worked with at the Southeast Asia program, my friend and Milk Tea Alliance partner, Diego Lingad. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Karen. It's great to be here and see CSIS in person after being a virtual intern. Definitely. And I'm so glad we could catch you on your visit from New York this week, where you're a General Assembly delegate at the UN, right? Tell us what goes on behind the scenes there. What's your best story? I think my best story might just be casually running into the coolest people, um, running into Secretary General Antonio Guterres, seeing Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, Priyanka Chopra, and just countless ministers and all these influential people on a daily basis, basically. Speaking of international delegations and conferences, the annual Boal Forum for Asia happened last week from March 28th to 31st in China. Malaysia's Prime Minister Anwar Ibrahim and Singapore's Prime Minister Lee Xianlong were in attendance and even conducted a bilateral meeting between themselves during the summit. This was Lee's first trip to China since 2020, and he did not leave empty-handed. Six MOUs were signed to expand cooperation in areas ranging from food safety to water and environmental research, and the two countries elevated bilateral relations to a, quote, all-round, high-quality, future-oriented partnership. During the visit, Lee focused on promoting the use of multilateral groupings within the Asia-Pacific region, including RCEP, CPTPP, and IPEF. In a speech at the summit, he argued that regional relations should be interdependent rather than revolve around one country, and suggested that the U.S. and China have a responsibility to maintain stable relations with each other. He also reported an upgrade to the China-Singapore FTA and touted an intergovernmental initiative that allows for efficient cross-border financial transactions as indicators of strong trade relations between Singapore and China. The Boal Summit and an associated five-day official visit also marked Malaysian Prime Minister Anwar's first trip to China since taking office in November. Likely, Anwar's remarks highlighted a need for regional cooperation, specifically in preventing competition in the technology and semiconductor industries. However, he showed greater interest in tapping into investment from China, Malaysia's largest trading partner, and called for an expansion of the Belt and Road Initiative. One project under the BRI is a high-speed rail connecting Singapore and Kunming, and one section running through Malaysia was scrapped by former Prime Minister Mahathir Mohamad in 2018 over debt concerns. What are your overall takeaways from these two visits, Diego? Well, I think Malaysia's and Singapore's rhetoric seem to reflect the two countries' strategic focus on deepening economic ties instead of addressing geopolitical tensions related to Taiwan and Myanmar. Unsurprisingly, Prime Minister Lee continued to stress Singapore's neutrality while Anwar focused on attracting investments to boost his government's performance and legitimacy. Some analysts have even said that the Malaysian government's critical position towards AUKUS is a sign that Anwar wants to stay on Beijing's good side. But more on that later during the interview with Dr. Idel. Moving on to our next story, 
Why don't you tell us about this new potential trilateral security framework between Japan, the Philippines, and the United States? Karen, I thought you'd never ask. As Taiwan becomes a focal point of intensified military activity, Tokyo, Manila, and Washington are preparing to establish a formal framework for high-level ministerial talks on security matters. Although Japan's embassy in the Philippines clarified that the pact is nowhere near set in stone, the three countries are expected to hold their first meeting as early as this month. Little has been unveiled about the pact's details, but officials familiar with the matter have stated that the three-way framework was put forward by Tokyo to boost deterrence against Beijing over concerns of a potential crisis in the Taiwan Strait. Who should our listeners expect to see at the table at these discussions, Diego? Well, besides Eduardo Ano, President Marcus Jr.'s security advisor, White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan and his Japanese counterpart Takeo Akiba are expected to be the two other representatives at the meeting, which will follow the first U.S.-Philippines 2 plus 2 ministerial dialogue in seven years, hosted in D.C. on April 11th. What's your read on this, Karen? President Marcos made clear that the administration will not embrace a Cold War mindset and pick sides between Beijing and Washington. So why does the timing of the talks matter? That's a good question. Discussions over a proposed security triad were already held during President Marcos Jr.'s February visit to Japan, where both sides floated the possibility of securing a visiting forces agreement with Tokyo. Over the weekend, the Philippines also revealed the locations of four new sites under the Enhanced Defense Cooperation Agreement, or EDCA, three in the northern Philippines and one in Palawan, near the South China Sea. Although Manila seeks the support of Tokyo and Washington over territorial disputes in the South China Sea, Filipino officials have been cautious about relying too much on the two countries. Two of the new sites are located in Cagayan, a province located 600 kilometers from Taiwan, and earlier this month, the mayor had publicly opposed the idea of hosting U.S. troops, citing concerns over being drawn into a hot conflict. There's lots of U.S.-Philippine engagement planned this month, so we'll continue tracking the issue. Moving away from high-level forums, let's talk about growth in the adoption of cloud technologies in ASEAN over the past few years. A recent Nikkei Asia article highlighted how Southeast Asia is leading global growth in cloud infrastructure, with data center operators pouring billions of dollars into emerging hubs like Bangkok and Jakarta for investment. Karen, can you give us the bird's-eye view of Southeast Asia's cloud market growth over the last few years? Happy to. Compared to 2021, last year saw the region's cloud infrastructure revenue increase by 25%, reaching over $2 billion. Lockdowns during the COVID-19 pandemic accelerated online data consumption, and Southeast Asia's internet economy is expected to triple over the next five years and be worth over $300 billion by 2025. Although Singapore accounted for roughly half of total revenue, the Philippines, Vietnam, Thailand, and Indonesia each logged annual growth of more than 30%, outpacing the wider Asia and global markets. What are some examples of the kinds of investments we've seen, Diego? There's been a good amount of investment from U.S. players like Amazon Web Services, which in the past five years has committed $5 billion each to long-term investments in Thailand and Indonesia. Chinese global vendors like Alibaba Cloud and Huawei Technologies have also made significant efforts to enter markets, with Huawei reportedly offering services at just one-third of competitors' prices to secure more market share. However, cloud vendors face multiple challenges to further growth including unstable power supplies, offering services beyond data storage, and meeting higher environmental sustainability standards. Singapore lifted a three-year moratorium on new data centers in 2022 and has called for new data centers to reduce their carbon emissions by investing in hydrogen or solar panels and be more energy efficient. 
And those are the headlines. Diego, thank you for gracing us with your presence. It was my pleasure. Honestly, a dream come true. This was my top podcast of 2022. So looking forward to what you'll be doing in this year. Up next, Greg and Alina's interview with Australia Chair Charles Edel on AUKUS. Welcome back to the next episode of Southeast Asia Radio. As always, I am Gregory Poling here at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, joined by my much smarter and more important co-host, Alina Noor of the Carnegie Endowment. Howdy, Alina. Too kind, Greg, as always. Hi, everyone. <laughs> and uh, today we're going to talk AUKUS. Uh, that would be the Australia-UK-US partnership that's been filling everybody's feeds for about a year and a half. And there's nobody better to talk about AUKUS than the inaugural Australia chair here at CSIF. And I should note the only Australia chair at a Washington think tank, my colleague, Charlie Edel. Hi, Charlie. Hey, Greg. Hey, Elena. Thanks for uh, having me on. There's much to talk about right now. Yeah, I'm sure this is the first time you've talked about AUKUS since the, the big announcement on March 13th. So to give uh, folks who, who are just coming out of long coma or something an update, AUKUS is this multi-decade potentially deal uh, struck between the US, UK, and Australia about 18 months ago. The centerpiece, or at least the part that's gotten most attention, being planned to get Australia uh, nuclear submarines, nuclear powered, not nuclear armed, as we always need to point out, making Australia the first country that is not a nuclear power who will operate nuclear powered submarines. And the pathway forward on that was announced by the leaders of the three countries earlier this month on March 13th. So why don't why don't we start by you explaining to all of us what exactly is the plan to get Australia nuclear powered submarines? Sure. Look, this is let's start by the fact that this is uh, kind of the reverse of how you normally do diplomacy and statecraft. In normal workings of uh, nation states, you figure something out and then you announce it. You don't announce it and then somehow hope that you can figure it out. And what we just heard on March 13th was the result of 18 months of intense coordination between U.S., Australia, and the U.K. Because, of course, when they announced it back in September 2021, they said, sounds like a good idea. We, we're not quite sure if we can pull it off. So we're going to have an intensive period where we figure out the optimal pathway forward to make sure that Australia can acquire nuclear-powered submarines at the earliest possible date. So this is the end result of that 18-month uh, study. And what they announced was surprising in a number of ways. Uh, and it was all about the nuclear-powered submarines, not about the advanced technologies, which is another part of AUKUS, uh, too. And it's surprising because it's quite complicated, it's quite complex, and they will arrive much sooner uh, than many people had anticipated. It's a multi-staged deal. So stage one of the deal uh, is the U.S. is going to actually start showing up in Australian waters uh, more regularly starting this year. Stage two, which is quite interesting, is uh, the U.S. and the U.K. Uh, will begin operating a rotational uh, submarine task force in Western Australia within two to three years time. They're going to build out all the dry docks for maintenance uh, and refurbishment uh, there. There'll be up to four U.S. nuclear-powered submarines, one British one. And the point is so that they can begin to upskill Australians by putting them on there, but also to have a submarine presence. The third stage, uh, which again was a bit of a shock, was uh, the U.S. is going to sell Australia, uh, at least three, uh, potentially as many as five, uh, Virginia-class attack submarines. 
in the early 2030s. It's surprising because the U.S. isn't actually producing enough to meet its own requirements now, but we're going to work on ramping up uh, kind of production lines. And again, as a kind of caveat uh, of that, one of the more interesting parts of the deal was Australia is actually going to invest in U.S. and U.K. production lines, right? Uh, They're investing billions of dollars uh, in our own production lines. And then the fourth and final stage, which won't materialize uh, till later in the 2030s and 2040s, is going to be a British-designed hull with American weapons systems that will first be made in Britain uh, for the British fleet. It will be called the SSN AUKUS. And then in the early 2040s, we'll begin coming online, being built in South Australia for the Australians' own requirements. So tell me if you're confused yet, because that's a lot of moving parts here about what it exactly it is that they just announced. So, Charlie, can we rewind to what you said initially before you went into the different stages? You talked a little bit about how this is represents a break from conventional diplomatic statecraft. Is this as much about signaling as about substance as anything? And if so, what is it signaling? Yeah, no, it's a great question, Elena. I I think it's equal parts both, right? That this is definitely about signaling. Uh, It is about signaling, let's start from the top, that Beijing should not expect to be operating in a friendly, favorable environment with no pushback uh, moving forward. That's the big signal here. But beyond that, I think it's a signal that, uh, as we hear from the White House regularly, that they want to make sure that allies are coordinating better with each other. And that means the integration of European and Asian allies to a greater effect than we have. So that's why you have Britain kind of pulled in with this. But you also have uh, signaling that the U.S. is going to have more intent and then more force posture uh, in the region that has had. Again, pointing us back towards that uh, deterrence equation. So I think the signaling that we are going to ramp up industrial capacity, uh, that we're going to do more with each other, and most importantly, that America now sees uh, its primary mission as helping to empower its closest allies to become stronger themselves in an effort to help deter China. That's the big signaling to me. But this shouldn't be read only as signaling, uh, right? There's a lot of actual content here. There are a lot of things that are going to be in and under the water. And they're signaling that they're going to do this as quickly as possible. So it's it's the two of those paired together because one without the other obviously doesn't matter that much. So Charlie, we're, uh, we're not the Australia radio podcast. So, I mean, the reason that we're talking about AUKUS is because the subs aren't just going to be hanging out immediately around Australia, presumably, right? So what is the envisioned mission region-wide, you know, South China Sea, Taiwan, et cetera, of stage, I guess, one, the deployment of, of U.S. and U.K. subs to, to Sterling, Western Australia, and then eventually of Australia's own uh, first Virginia class, and then someday this new AUKUS-class subs. What are they going to do? Yeah, no, uh, you say this is not an Australia-focused podcast, but in many ways it should be, because uh, I just got back from like a three-and-a-half-day sprint to Australia and back last week, because I really wanted to hear how uh, AUKUS was landing, get a kind of pulse check on how it was reverberating through various communities. And I have to say that that question, Greg, is like the big question. Uh, what exactly is this capability? What is it going to be used for? How are you going to use it differently than what we, the Australians, currently have? And I would say that a couple of things. Uh, one is various arguments that we've heard trotted out by the Australian uh, government. First is, if you think about the sheer size of Australia, they need 
naval assets that are more powerful than the ones that they have. Uh, someone, uh, one, Rory Medcalf, one of their uh, you know best commentators, said, "You can't." use all your fuel just getting out of the neighborhood before you actually project further uh, north and east. Uh, second part, though, about what they're going to be used for, I think they're going to use them for, as the Aussies have been saying for the last one, two, three years, that their defense strategy uh, now is incumbent on them being able to project power further into the region being able to potentially hold uh, adversaries off at further range, so more lethality, uh, more capability. And then also, as the deputy prime minister, who happens to double hat as the defense minister, they have a lot of jobs down there, said, look, Australia fundamentally is a commercial trading nation. Uh, 99% of its uh, exports go by sea lanes. 88% of the imports uh, go by sea lane. This is a commercial trading nation, and it has to be able to safeguard its sea lines of transit. So uh, I don't think they're going to give us an answer about exactly where they're going to put those assets, but they're going to be further north uh, and further east and further west into the region than they've had the ability to do before. Let me float the compromise that even though this is not OSPOD, this is, I don't know, a CPOD? <laughs> an app description, Greg, Southeast Asia uh, radio podcast. But, you know, we're talking about subs and AUKUS. And Charlie, you mentioned you just got back from Australia. Did you hear what Australia's neighbors are thinking about, you know, this latest phase in AUKUS, uh, specifically Indonesia? I know there's been some complaints that um, the statements that were put out by the Malaysian and Indonesian governments were not exactly what Canberra wanted to hear. But did you get a sense of what Canberra is getting from its neighbors? Yeah, no, this is a, a question I think I was keenly interested in listening to because I think everyone felt that for reasons of, I don't know, the great secrecy involved when they first announced it, the kind of diplomatic fallout of dealing with the French, but for any number of reasons that this wasn't pre-briefed uh, to Australia's neighbors, and therefore you had a lot of concerns raised. And if Australia seeks fundamentally to seek security in its region, not away from its region, that they have to make sure that this is at least understandable uh, and not going to cause great challenges with its neighbors. So one of the things that I heard, uh, Lena, is uh, kind of learning the lesson of last time around. Uh, they were on their front foot, the Aussies, diplomatically. The three leaders, the, the prime minister, the foreign minister, the defense minister, made more than 60 phone calls and visits over the two weeks uh, leading up to this. I, I mean, I talked with a lot of friends, like beleaguered uh, diplomats who said, like, we had like 20 calls in 24 hours. I don't know how you do that. But, you know, more or less, uh, I heard a, uh, a sense that they were rather pleased with the outcome that it was about as good as that they could have hoped for. Because you point to Indonesia, we'll dig into Indonesia if you want to, but regionally, it was a much more mixed picture. You have some who are very pro, uh, some who are anti. And then with the Indonesians and the Malaysians, who I think had expressed the greatest amount of concern previously, uh, my read, at least, of the Indonesian uh, statement was a much more measured uh, statement than what they had originally said on the initial announcement of AUKUS. Concerns, to be sure, about the uh, non-proliferation parts of it. Less concerns voiced about the uh, arms racing part, 
and less concerns about what it would do for regional stability. In fact, I note that the Malaysians were the only ones who continued to echo uh, some language about arms racing, which uh, we, can, we can dig into that about this being a, a perfectly normal response. But again, uh, you know, the Aussies, I think, were pretty pleased with their diplomacy on this. I don't want to take us too far afield, uh, but it's actually quite interesting to note uh, that after Anthony Albanese was in San Diego for this announcement, uh, his flight path on the way home was to Fiji, uh, where he spoke with the new PM who came out with like a ringing endorsement of AUKUS afterwards, uh, too. So, uh, look, long and short of it is, I think, a, a lot of diplomatic legwork to have a much more studied set of comments. But what are, what are you guys hearing in the region? Well, I, I think that you're you're absolutely right. The reaction has been mixed. But if I were in Canberra, and certainly from here in Washington, I think about as well as could have been hoped, and maybe far better than feared. The countries you expect are are overtly positive. The Japanese, the Koreans, the Philippines, um, the Philippines, basically every official has, has taken the opportunity to talk about how much they support AUKUS. More quietly, I think, the Vietnamese and most Singaporean elites are sympathetic, if not overtly positive. Indonesia has been an interesting case study because all the way back after the initial AUKUS announcement, there was a very clear divide within the Indonesian governing elite where Foreign Minister Retno Marsudi in particular talked about both arms racing and, and proliferation concerns. But then Defense Minister Prabowo Subianto was extremely positive. And when he, I think on the silence of the Manama Dialogue in Bahrain last year, that was Secretary Austin and said, you know, something to the effect of, we totally get why Australia would need AUKUS. We would do the same in, in those footsteps. And so I think, you know, across the region, for the most part, those countries or those parts of governments, in the case of Indonesia, most aligned with the threat perceptions about China are the most sympathetic to why Canberra felt it needed to take this position. Malaysia is a bit of an outlier. As you said, it's, it's, not, it's not the only place in the region where there's concern, but it's the only place where that concern has been public and where it's focused not just on the non-proliferation talking points, but still on the on the kind of strategic arms racing. And I'm Alina's far better positioned than me to explain why now two successive Malaysian governments remain so concerned about arms racing. I mean, as a Malaysian, I guess I'm not surprised. Um, and there is a very real, I think, consternation about the the escalation that this might set off because, you know, there are only so many things you can control despite what everyone says. I think, though, that you're right, Charlie. This has gone as well as the Australians could have hoped for. But I have heard that there were hopes initially that maybe with all this diplomatic campaign going on, that even the Malaysians could have been turned over, you know. And so the, the statement was a lot more moderated, the one that came out from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs Malaysia, compared to its first one. But I think there were some ambitions that maybe the language could have been toned down a little, perhaps with reference to the arms race. One of the things that's kind of in the, in the air or in the water, if we're going to play with the analogy of the debate, is... Arms racing itself is like a very interesting use of terminology and rhetoric because arms racing assumes that both sides are racing, whereas we all know that uh, only one side has been racing at full throttles, full speed ahead over the last two decades, right? And it's not the U.S. and certainly not Australia, but it is China. Uh, and the military modernization that they've kind of charged forward with has really shaped the region in many, many ways. And so one of the arguments that I heard consistently uh, as making more sense 
to the Australians, but also around the region too. You can hear this coming from the Philippines, I think, really clearly, also from the Japanese, also a bit from uh, the Singaporeans too, is that we expect that this will provide, or at least has the potential to provide, stability, right? If you have one side kind of charging ahead and no response, that looks like a green light for that side, the Chinese, to keep charging. When you begin to bring more assets online, uh, when you begin to diversify where it is that they sit, yeah, there are more assets in the region, but we hope that that actually brings stability because both sides are then somewhat deterred from taking further provocative actions. Charlene, do you think the recent efforts on transparency and making sure the IAEA is is overly supportive has helped defang the non-proliferation argument. China's response over the last two weeks, from my perch here in Washington at least, doesn't seem like it's resonating. I mean, maybe it's because China's a serial proliferator, um, ask Pakistan. Or maybe it's because you had the IAEA leadership come out and say, no, this is fine. This is exactly, this is kind of the most transparency we could possibly hope from countries on this front. Yeah, no, I do think that's the case. Look, a couple of different factors here. I mean, first of all, AUKUS was started by the previous Australian government, a center-right government. Uh, and President Biden said he wouldn't undertake this unless the opposition, uh, the Labor Party that's now the government, was read in, right? Because this is, as you said, Greg, going to be a multi-decade effort. And so uh, Labor, given, of course, less than 24 hours to comment on whether or not they supported AUKUS or not, said, uh, we'll do it only, only under the condition that we don't move away from our NPT commitments and that this isn't a pathway to anything else and that we're not going to have kind of a nuclear program here uh, covertly. And so they've been, I think, all three countries, because, of course, in the nonproliferation treaty, there is, you know, a clause that says that uh, nuclear propulsion technology is actually allowed. Uh, so they've worked very hard with the IAEA, as you pointed out, Greg, uh, the director general of IAEA, uh, Rafael Grossi, was at CSIS just two weeks ago and said that he sees this as a model of transparency, uh, how the three countries are working together. And so you can actually hear, because this is really what uh, I think the Australians have stressed, that this is not going to be a nuclear weapons proliferation concern. There's a rumor that Anthony Albanese uh, sent a letter to all the ASEAN leaders expressly underscoring that point. And you can hear that's had some purchase. Uh, even Hun said said that, look, we understand this is not a, a nuclear weapons program. It's nuclear propulsion technology. He then had other things to say, of course. But uh, I think that the point has really been underscored. And that points to the fact that all these information or rather disinformation efforts by the Chinese have largely fallen flat. Not to get back to the arms race issue, but I mean, I guess, you know, just to push back a little, Charlie, there is sure. a view in the region that China's military modernization was long due, right? Some would say overdue, and it's only natural for China to really upgrade its assets. But I think the concern is that AUKUS sets off this, okay, so now China has to, you know, double down on its modernization efforts. And we haven't talked about kind of the, the next stage beyond the, the four stages of AUKUS, because it's going to be a multi-decade effort with all sorts of different technologies coming into play. It's going to change the nature of the, the arms acquisitions, I guess you would say, if you want to use the, the word race, in the region. And that means that there are countries in Southeast Asia that are going to be tempted to also try to keep up, you know, resources permitting. Look, it's not pushback because I don't think we disagree here uh, at all. I mean, the two things that I would uh, just kind of respond are that I don't think it's the fact that China has modernized their military that has set off concerns in Australia and elsewhere. 
it's the more aggressive use to which they put that modernized military in the oftentimes non-transparent way that they are expanding and increasing what it is that they're pouring into the defense, which is something that is well noted, even if not always explicitly addressed around Southeast Asia. The second thing, though, and again, we know that, you know, you kind of temper how you say this in Southeast Asia more than you might in Japan uh, or in Australia or elsewhere. But one of the things that really struck me in Australia is, look, the Australians are just as parochial as Americans are and just as parochial as everyone are. You know, they think that their debate are, is the only one that's happening. That's not really true, right? The fact that multiple countries in the region, uh, you know, I'll move outside of Southeast Asia for a second, Alina, but that the Japanese are undertaking a massive uh, reevaluation of their security and their defense spending and their procurement. The fact that the Koreans are moving towards that as well. The fact that the Indians are, the fact, you know, these are all reactions to the same set of stimuli and it's not the US, right? It's China here. So uh, again, it strikes me as we all see the same picture evolving and are increasingly concerned about it. Different nations choose to kind of move slightly differently and at different paces. Charlie, when you're in Australia talking to you know, friends and, and colleagues, how much does the AUKUS conversation bleed into the broader conversation about Australia's evolving role in the region and its, you know, increasing networking with the Japanese, with the Filipinos, they were kind of taking on a role that it's, it's really never played before and, and some of which is tied up with the U.S., but a lot of which is happening without U.S. involvement. Yeah. So it depends who you talk to, Greg. If you kind of read the uh, media splashes, not at all, right? Like submarines are so like exciting, interesting, unique and novel. Like that is the only thing, the number of like five by 10 glossies that I've seen about like, this is where the weapons are. This is where the bunk rooms are. You know, it's really all that that is. But your question is actually the right one uh, because AUKUS is some, but not all of what Australia is doing in terms of evolving its defense strategy. And in fact, I say all the time that AUKUS is like the first of three shoes to fall. Uh, I don't know what animals have three shoes, but stay with me here. Some you know, very sympathetic dogs. Very sympathetic dogs. That's true, I guess. So look, AUKUS came out because they were working intensely on it. But this is part and parcel of a much larger defense strategic review that the new government is undertaking uh, that's going to reorient themselves. We talked about this a little bit earlier to have a more forward role to play in the region, to be more capable on themselves and to have uh, more capacity to support it. This is going to be not just submarines, but an entire industry or kind of a series of industries that point towards, you know, more strike options, more drones, more heavily armored warships. This is all going to come out in about a month's time. And it's going to show us, uh, I think, what the fuller picture looks like, although it's not really a secret. I mean, the details will be, but we know exactly how they're reorienting themselves because they've said it for a while. And then the third shoe uh, for little rover is the budget. You know, it, it's good to say you want stuff, but the question is, how are they going to pay for this? Because this is massively expensive stuff. And the Australian budget comes out in May. So uh, one thing that I've noticed that I'm curious to get your reaction to is, and we talked about this a little bit with kind of Indonesia's slightly more nuanced language this time around, but I've noticed when we zoom out a little bit further that a fair amount of countries have changed what they think about AUKUS over the past 18 months. Uh, so the Kiwis who said nothing about it now are like somewhat curious about 
AUKUS, not on the nuclear-powered submarines, but all the other advanced technological aspects of it. The South Koreans have said that they're interested. The Japanese have talked about how soon can we get into JAUKUS. You know, the French have even had words about this, but we can't pronounce what the acronym would look like. I just see kind of a shifting picture where countries have evolved their position over time and see some of the potential benefits of kind of further technological cooperation. And I'm curious when we kind of uh, put the flashlight into Southeast Asia, if you've seen any changing kind of assessments about what this could mean and the benefits it might bring. It's hard to say, you know, whether it's time that has tempered some of the sentiments towards AUKUS or whether countries are just on kind of a just wait and see mode. Uh, because a lot of these details over the last 18 months, at least, were still being rehashed or being hashed out rather. And so now that the announcements have been made and some of those specifics fall into place, I, I wonder if you'll see uh, some reactions from the region that may or may not look different from what was initially said. So I'm kind of in a wait and see mode myself. Yeah, I, you know, other than the Philippines kind of glowing response, which I I referred to earlier, I haven't seen a lot of public chatter from governments or even public intellectuals in the region about what really kind of nuts and bolts all this is going to do for regional security. I mean, you know, I think the Filipinos understandably kind of see the ability of Australian or anybody else um, vessels to operate in the South China Sea and beyond is is just a, an unmitigated good. And the Vietnamese probably think something similar in in the background. As we move beyond the sub-debate, I think that'll be interesting, right? Because then countries will start to get a sense of what else AUKUS is. And there's nobody else in the region, I think, is going to have any interest, much less capability in a, a future nuclear-powered submarine capability. But a lot of other things could come out of AUKUS, and that could be attractive to U.S. partners and allies. The Philippines, maybe not on capabilities, but on legal regimes and alliance networking, would be at the front of that list, especially if they can wrap up Jasomia this year with the Americans and the status of force agreement with the Japanese and continue to integrate themselves more into the broader alliance network. I'd also flag this year's Shangri-La Dialogue. At the beginning of June, Prime Minister Albanese is going to be the keynote speaker. So we'll see. I mean, kind of you'll have all the eminence of the defense community from across the region there. I assume 90% of what they're going to ask about is going to be AUKUS. So that'll give us you know, some more sense of, of where the debate is in public across the region. No, that's a great point. Last thing I'd say is that all my friends kind of work for the Australian government said, oh, my gosh, we're exhausted on kind of doing the diplomacy now. We have to stop talking about this. I think everyone's sick about hearing about AUKUS in the region, too. But we're just going to pause and we think we'll probably have to ramp up again. So I guess I'm guessing they're thinking around June when he heads up to Singapore for that. Give him his much deserved rest in the meantime. Well, that's that's it for this uh, episode of South Asia Radio. Charlie, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you guys for having uh, me on. Uh, I look forward to, uh, I don't know, doing a, a six-month or 12-month uh, check-in, and we'll see uh, where things have uh, landed. Multi-decade Australian advancement in alliance management is going to be our next topic. Alina, thank you as always. Folks, we'll be back in another couple of weeks. I won't tell you exactly what that topic will be, but I'll point out that we're going to have the first U.S.-Philippine 2 plus 2 meeting here in Washington in seven years, so you can draw your own conclusions.
Thanks again for joining us for this episode of Southeast Asia Radio. We're still accepting questions for our upcoming anniversary episode, so feel free to write us at searadio at csis.org and we'll read your question on air. Do us a favor and subscribe and give us a rating on iTunes or Spotify or whatever streaming platform you listen to us on. Tell your friends about us. Marla Hiller is our producer and our interns are Stephen Vo and Margaret Lin. Our co-hosts today were Greg Poling and Alina Noor. My name is Karen Lee. And I'm Diego Lingad. And we'll see you in two weeks for another episode of Southeast Asia Radio.